Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week under the radar, the buck stops at Beacon Hill. State lawmakers denied a pay raise. Mayor Walsh kicks off the second year of his tenure with an ambitious agenda. And a local church and its minister thrust into the Governor Baker spotlight. Later in the show, sharing personal histories, telling Boston's story. For eight years, the memoir project guided seniors from Boston's neighborhoods in writing about their lives. We'll hear from a few of them. But first, joining me in studio... Lauren Desinski, reporter from the Dorchester Reporter. Welcome, Lauren. How's it going? It's going well. Gin Dumchus, reporter from the Statehouse News Service. Hi, Gin. Hey, how are you? And Marcella Garcia, bilingual journalist and a regular contributor to the Boston Globe editorial and op-ed pages. Hi, Marcella. Hi. All right, well, let's uh, kick off with a few big over-the-radar stories that happened <laughs> last week. I mean, the first, Boston is the pick for the Olympics committee, I, my mind is blown, I must tell you. I, I'm, Yay. I'm, <laughs> I'm very surprised. I, you know, I'm on record for having said way back in July that I was kind of more interested in it than I thought I would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as time passed and there was fewer and fewer, well, fewer, no conversation with the community about it, I was kind of getting mad like other people. So I'm I honestly I'm stunned I have to say but I'm not it doesn't have anything to do with my being stunned or not I'm I'm interested in your y'all's take and um Lauren I know you were sort of on this had was at ground zero uh early on Yeah to a certain extent yeah. um back this summer uh we got a tip uh for the story there so they're um in the curve of I93 on the Dorchester Southie border uh there's this food production facility it employs over 700 people on the entire area is called Whitette Circle. It was created back in the 60s by the city. They basically relocated all the food production facilities from Faneuil Hall and moved them to this location. This business wanted to come in and it was kind of infringing upon, you know, the businesses at Whitette Circle and they were concerned. And then all of a sudden, you know, these these questions kind of started cropping up of, you know, oh, the Olympics are being proposed. Oh, apparently, you know, this location is one of the you know, right next door is uh, a BPD tow lot as well as an MBTA facility. Like these are city owned properties that in theory would be in play. And, you know, there were kind of questions back then, but, you know, it, it wasn't really it was under the radar, truly. <laughs> yes. So finally, you know, in what was it, late September, early October, the Boston 2024 backers come out, you know, in this big press conference at the State House saying, you know, these are the places where we are considering citing you know, these Olympic facilities. And lo and behold, White at Circle is one of those locations, completely unbeknownst to the business owners mm. there. They, they literally found out about this mm. by reading the newspapers. And so now there's, you know, there's a reaction that's kind of kicked in place. And, you know, they 
simply just want a seat at the table. And so it was it was advantageous for, you know, the Dorchester reporter because we had been at that we had been on that story, at least initially. And we did a big uh, piece on it, I think, late November uh, that then appeared on the front page of the Boston Globe three weeks later. It was nice to see. Yeah. Um, but now, I mean, there's there's a lot of questions. And I think that, you know, the city truly doesn't know the contours of this bid. And that's the biggest question. That and when, when you say the city, you mean the, the people of the city. We, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Marcella? Well, um, to me, obviously, there's there was a huge question of transparency. Nobody knew what was happening. Everything was cl- behind closed doors. And I think that that didn't help with the community, number one. Number two, what I found also very interesting is is the reaction, the knee-jerk reaction of everyone. is like, no, it was... It was almost as if we were all going to die if the Olympics <laughs> came here. It's a disease. We're all going to catch it. It's the end of the days. And so it was very contrasting to see the people that were up. Honestly, I in the beginning when I first when I first was planted, oh, you know, maybe Boston could host the Olympics. I was like, oh, you know, that could be nice. But then you start hearing all this noise. And then what I'm hearing, though, is that People have been saying, uh, yes, we're going to spend two years talking about this. We're going to have community meetings. The community meetings have already been announced, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then we're not going to get the the uh, final bit, you know, competing with international cities like Paris, Rome. We're just not going to get it. So it's almost going to be it's going to be very anticlimactic. But at the same time, there may be some benefit to spending two years talking about all these projects, all the infrastructure projects that could happen regardless of the Olympics or not, um, and, and all these community meetings, I, I think that would be the upside. But I just don't think, I just don't see it happening, you know, hosting the Olympics because of the competition, of the international competition. Well, again, um, apparently a few weeks ago, maybe Boston's bid was a little shaky, but then some people strengthened it, the people from the Boston 2024. And, of course, since we don't know vis-a-vis what Marcella just said about transparency, what that meant, the bid got strengthened in some way to the people who made the decision. Then we came out a winner. Um, to be clear, uh, Mayor Marty Walsh did announce the uh, the beginning of the, of the the public conversations, and they're spread all over the city, which is very interesting, and it should be. So there is an opportunity for people to get out and find out what's going on. And also the 2020 folks have their own set of meetings that'll be available to folks. Well, that, I mean, are we, are you anticipating from what you hear on the ground that there's going to be some real information given at those meetings or is it just to let people yell and then at the end they just go do whatever they did? I don't know. I don't know. Well, that, that is sometimes the public <laughs> process in Boston. Um, well, there will be nine community meetings, is my understanding, stretching into September. Uh, and I, I would think that, you know, uh, Boston has a pretty uh, healthy press corps. You know, there's going to be a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think everybody's going to dig, dig into this um, and, uh, and see what's there. Um, I, I was in the newsroom uh, along with my colleagues last night when it was announced, and I think we all, we were all kind of just picking our jaws off the floor <laughs> because the, the kind of the, the sense was that, um, I think somebody tweeted that you know it was gonna, it was down to San Francisco or or L A. I'm, I'm not sure who I think it was somebody out west. So yeah, it was might, San Francisco. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they might have been biased on that front, but um, you know, so so there was an expectation that that Boston would probably not get it. Um, and I think now now that it, it is real, you wake up the next morning and it is real. Kind of you know we got to look at the community process and make make ensure that it's uh, transparent. Absolutely. Well, I think um, there are a lot of folks who are very ready to be quite angry about this if there's not. I mean. I don't let me just say this that 
if if even if nothing came out of this except for two years of con- of conversation, real conversation, because you're going to have to have some details okay. about what should happen about infrastructure, and you know that cannot be a bad thing. Right, right. That, that just right. can't be a bad thing. Yeah. Now. Sadly, why couldn't that happen whether or not we had the the, yeah, the pressure exactly. of an Olympic bid that, or that's not? That's the thing, yeah. that when people were saying, we should be spending all this time talking about this instead of the Olympics, but the reality is that we wouldn't be spending, you know, if, if there wasn't this catalyst to incite all these conversations. I'll tell you one thing. I think the biggest winner in this is going to be the press because we're going to no have kidding. a field day, <laughs> yeah. you know, talking about it, com- covering this. It, it's going to be great. I mean, from that perspective, I'm psyched. It's funny. <laughs> I, I was talking to a reporter friend in Los Angeles when the, the initial tweet came out saying that it was going to be San Francisco and L.A. And I had the gall to say, oh, I'm kind of disappointed. This would have been a really solid two and a half years of reporting. But I think, you know, it behooves the press corps to really chase this story. I mean, I think we're all kind of haunted by the big dig. I mean, I I certainly wasn't covering the big dig. You know, I I wasn't in a position to do so. But, you know... I, I think, you know, as as a citizen of Boston and a member of the press corps, we know that it is our responsibility to chase these people and to hold them to the fire. You know, public accountability does come from the fourth estate to a certain extent. And I think that, you know, we are a part of this process as well. Mm-hmm. Well, hold on to your hats. It's going to be an interesting <laughs> ride. I can't wait to see the early meetings just to see what comes no out kidding. of that. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Um, also last week, uh, Charlie Baker became Charlie Baker. Baker, governor of the state of Massachusetts, a goal that he long wanted. Um, I want to, you know, tie his inauguration into a story that uh, you pointed out, uh, Marcelo, which is that the night before his inauguration, there was a prayer service at a church, um, and uh, the Globe did a huge piece. Your paper did a huge piece about how um, the church and the minister have become a real force in the Latino community and that that signals something by Charlie Baker's choosing to go there for that um, service the day before he was inaugurated. Well, to me, I mean, this thing didn't happen overnight. And Mm -hmm. it's one of those things that I see in the paper and I go, oh, great. You know, there's all these people waking up and and seeing, oh, there's a Hispanic church in Boston. I had no idea. How fascinating. (laughs) But but it didn't happen overnight. This this, uh, church has been really, really influential for a long time. When I was working for the Spanish language newspaper El Planeta, we used to do a series, an annual list of the most influential people for the Latino community. And Pastor Miranda was always on the list, and he was always very media shy, which Hmm. made me, like a couple of years ago in the aftermath of the Boston Marathon, you remember that service where all the clergy attended and Mayor Menino, Mm -hmm. that uh, whole thing. I saw him there, and I'm like, oh, it's, it's, it's interesting that he's deciding to go into the spotlight now because he's always been very media shy. And the story is fascinating. I mean, here's a guy from the Dominican Republic who went, he has a, a PhD from Harvard, and, and he decided to create his own church, and he did it successfully. He has a ton of members, a lot of money. And, you know, now, uh, again, in, in, in that two years ago when I saw him, I, I was surprised that he had decided to to come to the spotlight, but he's always been very media shy. Now, with um, Governor Baker bringing the spotlight into these churches, it's interesting. But I feel like he he was he was doing this uh, with all the with all the events surrounding his inauguration. He went to Lawrence. He went to um, you know he's going to go to Dorchester, I believe. So he's going to all these places. To his credit, I mean, I 
I'm glad he decided to do that. <clears throat> he's he's having this serious spotlight on excellence, and he went to Lawrence and places that really haven't been, um, you know, uh, on the spotlight per se. And he's again, it's, it may be just rhetoric, and it may be just part of his this whole um, image thing or whatever. But but the fact that he went to the Hispanic Church is interesting, very um, significant. And but but again, th- this church has been there for a long time. It did not happen overnight, right. and it did leave me, you know, just with shaking my head a little bit because because now he's bringing this um, this light, and, and people are covering it. But it, it, it there's a lot more to that story than you know. O Baker is going there, you know. Well, it's uh, again I, what I was also struck by is not only the emphasis on the church, and, and which may be new to some, and also the pastor um, Miranda, um, who may be new to some. But also, if you looked in the photograph, there were folks from. I mean, it was a true looked like a very serious interfaith mm-hmm. a gathering. So, so to me, what's in, what was interesting about it is that. All those people had to come to his church, so that, in my estimation, this power is power. It's power. What do you? Yeah. What, how did you take it? You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that was kind of uh, the the theme overall of uh, of Baker's uh, inaugural was kind of this this redistribution of of power, um, and it is kind of a, a shifting of a dynamic too, because you have a Republican governor again for the first time in eight years, and I think Baker is uh, more cognizant than uh, his Republican predecessors of. Uh, the fact that he is he is uh, governing a, a state that's mostly democratic, mm-hmm. and I think you're seeing that with his uh, attention to the people he's hiring, the people he's deploying in his inaugural, um, you know, whether they come from the religious sector or political sector or wherever, um, you know, I, I think he he is he is trying to be inclusive. Uh, you know, the, the 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 challenge is sustaining that momentum and 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 go, keeping it going forward uh, over the next uh, uh, three to four years. To a certain extent, he has to. I mean, yeah. look at look at the margin by which he won. Yeah, you know, re-election starts the day after the election, yeah. and you know, he he knows that he can't do it without reaching out to these communities that, you know, other people weren't necessarily reaching. Another thing that that it's interesting to me about this church that that goes unnoticed because it hasn't really been covered is that it has a um, a community component. They have, it's called um, Agencia Alpha, which is an advocacy group, and they. I mean, it's just it it not it's it isn't just a community group in the sense that it offers citizenship training and immigration uh, meetings and all that. It is an advocacy group that it's you know at the forefront of uh, you know with all the other groups um, advocating for driver's licenses for uh, immig- for undocumented immigrants. They're very vocal, and it's weird, rare rather than you know to have a church and to have this advocacy group you know tied very very closely to each other, but yet. They're very they're, they're separate, you know what I mean, and and so it's interesting that he has decided to to go there, uh, Baker, because of like Ginn said, you know, Republican, and he said that he's not he's not uh, supporting driver licenses for undocumented immigrants. So so it's an interesting it's an interesting. Well, play. not only has he said that he's not supporting driver's license, so he can always change his mind on that. But yep. well, we know that uh, the pastor is very very um, anti gay. Y- yes. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of uh, Charlie Baker's most popular ads in the campaign was with his brother, yep. who was gay. Yep. He made it quite clear that, you know, that's not yep. his position. So that was an interesting, he had to compromise something to go there and yeah. make it clear that he differed with him, even though he recognized the power and wanted to be there. Right. Again, that shows um, the church's clout. Yes. So 
We'll be keeping an eye on it. You know, I have to say the first thing I thought because I'm, you know, I'm getting cynical hanging around with you people. Was that <laughs> Sorry. I thought some scandal's going to happen, and what's going to happen? What'll really let you know uh, the pastor's power is that they're going to call him up there for a prayer meeting. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> then you know. <laughs> then you know this is very serious. That's true. <laughs> okay. True. Anyway, moving on. Um, so the Massachusetts state lawmakers are not getting any more money. Again, <laughs> frozen. Their salaries are frozen, just like uh, we were last. Last week, um, it's, uh, so so one one of the things that the governor does uh, is uh, uh, make a biennial adjustment to state legislator pay, uh, and he does that by taking into account a variety of economic factors, median family income, um, and one of the governor Patrick's last acts uh, was um, to send a letter to the state treasurer saying uh, there will be n- there will not be an adjustment this year that the. Uh, he used the same methods he did last time, which resulted in a cut, actually, um, of, in legislator pay. But uh, this, the same method uh, determined that there would be no increase or decrease. Um, and, and to Patrick's, uh, to, to the letter he sent, he, he said that uh, he regretted the outcome because he felt they, they, they had earned an increase. And he wished he could have done that. Um, and uh, it's been part of a, of a very large debate about how much should public officials get paid. Are they, be, are they being paid enough? Um, now the salary is frozen at sixty around sixty thousand dollars. I will say the there was a special commission uh, last year that put the average lawmaker's salary, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, compensation uh, at seventy around seventy three thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. If you take into account committee chairmanships and all sorts of other. Um, Bits and pieces of, of compensation they get, um, so uh, you know they're not they're they're not exactly house poor, um, mm-hmm. but um, you know it's been it's been part of a, a, a very public debate um, that I think uh, will obviously continue uh, now that Baker's governor, um, he's going to have to do it uh, uh, in the next two years. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see where it goes from that. Well, um, Lauren, I don't think it's going anywhere because the first thing out of his mouth in his inaugural speech was, I'm dealing with the budget. Exactly. That didn't sound good mm-hmm. for any kind of increase. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the things that interests me about the story, too, was the visual of uh, Governor Patrick, you know, basically delivered this note. Uh, to the treasurer's office as he was walking out the front door <laughs> of the state house. So I, so like reading the story, I just had this visual of Treasurer Grossman opening up this envelope, like reading the letter and kind of like looking agape, like out the window as Governor Patrick like walks down the stairs. Very graphic there. And by the way, Gro- Grossman's job's over too in that moment. Yeah. So exactly. Not, not so that he could do anything. So maybe he know? was like yeah. secretly like high five. Not you know. <laughs> No, but um, no, I mean, I I think that the new kind of crop of, of folks up on Beacon Hill are really faced with some tough, tough decisions when it comes to, you know, dealing with the budget. I was I was speaking with a legislative aide yesterday and he was like, he, you know, rolled his head back and was kind of like, yeah, we're concerned about the budget. This mm. is this is the next big issue. And it's it's going to be a doozy. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely going to be a doozy, um, Marcella. So that you don't see any future for them for a pay raise, do you? No. Well, you know what I was thinking when I read that story is about Governor Patrick. You know, great that he um, that this happened, but there's also some other things that he failed to do. Um, remember that story about the um, how he folded all these state workers into the um, into the the union, the state mm-hmm. union, and how and, and to me it's surprising that that. That didn't make a lot of noise because uh, he essentially – that reeked of sort of like a payback. You know what I mean? Um, 
granted, it was not a lot of money uh, or it wasn't a, a bigger cost or a big cost. I think it was only like half a million dollars, what, what it was going to mean. But in the face of a budget crisis and or rather the, the budget deficit, I mean, I'm not really sure if it's going to be a crisis yet or not, but, yeah. you know, it matters. And, and I think, you know, he did this and then he did that. And, and But at the same time, I, I don't know if that can be reversed for ba- you know now that that uh, well I think that's part of the issue is that you know Governor Baker gets to review a lot of this and some things he probably will right uh, right reverse I don't know how or why but you know it would this depend is on one of the things the that he thing. could have very well uh, left to to bake Baker to the side it didn't yeah. have to happen right away uh, yeah he maybe didn't he was have fulfilling to do it. a promise that exactly. we don't know anything about so exactly. anyway that's going to be interesting to see if you're just tuning in this is under the radar with Callie Crossley I'm Callie Crossley and here with me is Lauren Desen of the Dorchester Reporter, Gen Dumchus of the Statehouse News Service, and Marcella Garcia, you just heard her, of the Boston Globe. So, um, Lauren, let's move on to this aggressive agenda. Speaking of agendas, yes. 55 <laughs> proposals from Mayor Walsh, um, yes. no small task, and an Olympic bid to deal with. <laughs> It, you know, again, how, another yeah. doozy, this one coming out of City Hall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, so... Mayor Walsh, uh, he gathered the Boston delegation um, this past Monday at the Parkman House. As as Ginn can attest to, Mayor Menino did this uh, in an open uh, press situation, but this was closed press. Um, but, of course, we have our ways. Um, basically, <laughs> uh, Mayor Walsh has all of these different legislative proposals that he wants the Boston delegation to sign on to. And it was funny. I was trying to find a word or a term to summarize, you know, these 55 different proposals, whether they're all about, you know, putting power back into the hands of the city, which largely, you know, that that really is kind of the case here. But it's it's everything from giving uh, retired police officers the opportunity to um, staff um, uh, shifts like you know, of the details. En- of details, yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. with an NSTAR truck on Dot Ave, and it'll help public safety. Uh, putting um, bike guards on city owned trucks, um, cutting some red tape with small businesses. It's really all over the place. And I think uh, Mayor Walsh described it as all over the road. Like it was just, you know, it's, it's just kind of everywhere. But I think one of the interesting things that, you know, this kind of bevy of proposals speaks to uh, one is. Mayor Walsh's experience in the legislature. He was there for 17 years. He knows what he's doing. He understands these legislators' jobs. They're all quite new to their positions. And every single representative and senator that I spoke to had nothing but good things to say about the mayor. And I was actually speaking with someone else from Western Massachusetts kind of about the story. And they said, you know, I know representatives from Western Mass who would have been just as eager to sign on to these proposals. Mm. So I think that really speaks to Mayor Walsh's reputation, you know, at the State House. I mean, look at the inauguration. You saw him chatting with Speaker DeLeo yesterday, you know, before mm. Governor Baker was sworn in. I think that, you know, he really does have a strong standing as a politician in the state. I wonder if also um, with his legislative experience, you know, and those relationships mean everything. Mm-hmm. I'm picking up, and maybe this is just me, because from the dizzying um, <laughs> mayor's race, <laughs> there were all of these things, these small things that kept coming up that really drive people crazy, no matter what audience, no matter what the subject matter was, you know, the permitting thing, the mm-hmm. this, the that, 
over and over again. And so what he's presented now is addressing all of those things, those commonalities that we heard over and over again. Again, did you do, would you have would you agree with me that, that that to me that's what I took it as. It is all over the place, but it's all over the place with a purpose, addressing <laughs> all those things Little that kept things. coming up all the time with people on the when he was on the campaign trail. Right, and I, and I, and I think he, you know, he is uh, going to be up for re-election in in uh, a, a quick uh, quick few years. So obviously he has his eye on that and making sure that he uh, that he uh, fulfills that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, given his was it seventeen years as a state rep, uh, I think he is going to try to leverage that. Obviously, local aid money to to the city is his top priority. But getting legislation done like this and and uh, being able to tell uh, uh, constituencies. Uh, uh, at one constituent constituency or another that hey I got this done for you uh, I have leverage on on Beacon Hill now that's contingent on his relationship with um, the the lawmakers and uh, I think as as Mayor Menino showed that you know that didn't always work out he right. warred with them over the uh, attempted closure of several libraries. Um, you know, there's obviously various various factions. Boston is a city of neighborhoods, which means it's, ne- it's a city of factions sometimes. <laughs> and um, so, so the the question is, how much of this is he actually going to get passed mm. uh, through the legislature, and how much of his, uh, I guess, goodwill that he's earned, uh, how much of that can he leverage to 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 get as much po- passed as possible? But with 17 years' experience, Marcella, and um, these are all good points that Gen has raised. Um, you also, I would think. Even if you are representing Boston, have a Massachusetts perspective because mm. you've been in the legislature. Part of the problem that some of the other legislators have with folks from Boston is they're all about Boston and they never think about the rest of the state. So here's a guy who's been there 17 years. He had to work with other people. He has a sense of the whole state. You know, yes, I'm the mayor of Boston, but I get that. So that, to me, in his approach and um, the good w- would would go a long way. To say to other people as he's trying to get some of this stuff through, look, I see you, I get it, mm-hmm. and here's how I've structured this so that mm-hmm. I'm not just talking about yes, it benefits Boston, but it's a Massachusetts benefit. Right, but yeah. I mean, right now, what I think he's trying to do, to, to Gain's point, is think about re-election, and, and especially now that the city council is also, or the city councils are trying to position themselves, well, eyeing that price. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he wants to to be strong where he is uh, strongest, and. And, you know, Menino didn't always work uh, that well in this area, but because Menino's greatest asset was Menino, you know, and but he didn't become Menino overnight. And Menino overnight. was all about Boston. Come on he now. He was, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, but, but I think the, the, the challenge is to balance those two things to, to Gin's point, to, to strengthen his position uh, with the legislature, and that's where he's the strongest, versus being all about Boston. Again, uh, especially with in, in the face of all the city councilors trying to position them, themselves in preparation to a, a possible run. I mean, all of them are trying to do that yeah. right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, that's that's fair. So, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of politics, but I I thought it was interesting that he's he. I think the variety has to do with hearing folks and maybe also a good dollop of political savvy mm-hmm. about, let me address that totally. so I get yeah. all these are various constituencies. Let me go back, Lauren, just back to this uh, police detail thing, because I know there's been some controversy about police details over time about should there be some. What, what's the deal with that? And and does this, what he's hoping for, make that go away, whatever the issue has been? Because I'm, I'm actually being quite fuzzy because I can't remember it what the issue It was retired policemen. Right? Yes. Yeah, so this, this is retired. So right. It seems to be okay, but yeah. I just want to make sure. So, I mean, this, this specifically addresses the problem of, uh, especially over the summer months, there are fewer and fewer police mm-hmm. uh, available uh, to provide details for more routine 
uh, purposes. Um, obviously, in the summer, it's it's fairly easy to get police to, uh, you know, staff, um, you know, Red Sox games, mm-hmm. Boston Pops, you know, it's, um, our, you know, Fourth of July celebrations, like all, all the kind of big ticket items. Mm-hmm. But it's the basic, you know, when the N-Star truck is parked out on Dot Ave or when you have construction going on, like it's, a, it's the basic kind of, you know, you need a police officer there no matter what. Mm-hmm. But it's harder and harder to convince them on, you know, a Saturday afternoon, you know, in a, on a beautiful August day to, to stand out. So... In essence, you know, it it kind of frees up opportunities uh, for retired police officers. Uh, to be honest, I, I this I, is not would it be controversial because some from, people were complaining about police details not long ago, and I and I honestly don't remember why. I believe so, that was a debate <laughs> over having uh, civilian flaggers. Uh, okay, uh, all right, uh, okay, on, thank on you. On site, and uh, <laughs> so that was a controversy because police were saying, you know, this is a way for us to make extra money. Got it. Uh, okay. Why why hand it over to to a civilian person? Uh, thank you. Help me because I because I knew there was something going on there. <laughs> Thanks, so so this seems to be. This seems to so- solve a lot of problems for everybody then with the retired people doing the mundane things and the mm-hmm. folks who are, all right, so, all right, just want to get that straight. Thank you. <laughs> right. uh, now, this is something that, um, again, I think you raised about this headlights bill. The Massachusetts mm-hmm. House approved a headlights bill. So now um, this, the state law, you'll be required, you know, we right now you can turn it on your lights at night and uh, during dawn and dusk. This will mean that the lights are on when there's, Bad weather, visibility, whatever. Well, windshield wiper, when windshield yes. wipers are on. Uh, this is one of uh, dozens of bills that were sent to Governor Patrick uh, in his last days in office. Uh, because uh, if if he if Governor Patrick didn't sign these bills, they would die. Uh, and then you have to start all over. You have to refile, and you're at the bottom of the okay. pyramid. So, uh, and the headlight bill is one of those uh, that that sailed through uh, in the end. Uh, because it was viewed as a public safety issue, folks were like, you know, if if uh, you you should be required to turn on your headlights when you know uh, you're using your windshield wipers or, or something like that. And, you know, AAA backed it um, and uh, eventually got to to his desk and he and he signed it as one of his uh, last acts. I have to say, I was shocked by this. I, I grew up in Tennessee, and that's where I learned to drive. We, that was always the rule. I, didn't I know thought that was the rule here. Coming I always turned mine on. I, yeah, me too. <laughs> right. That's. Weird to me. Yeah, I mean <laughs> Massachusetts, right? I mean we have we have a lot of <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, all right, there you have it. All right. Um <laughs> Lauren, let me go back to you about this uh treatment facility and Mattapan that yes. Mayor Walsh, speaking of whether or not he'll tick somebody off politically. <laughs> um, this is a big firestorm because he mm-hmm. wants to be build these treatment facilities mm-hmm. in Mattapan. Um, the first meeting that happened was very vociferous, oh huge gosh. meeting with people who are angry that, uh, and this is in the, the wake of the closing of the Long Island shelter mm-hmm. treatment facilities. Um, they were angry that he wanted to, to put them there. And, mm-hmm. and it just, um, you know, it seems like he's trying to make a case that this needs to be here. Yeah. It, will he be able to persuade people otherwise? One of the things that was stunning, so this was a public meeting last Monday uh, held in Mattapan. Um, Mayor Walsh wasn't at that first meeting. Basically, you know, he came in and you know, people, people were upset. You know, after, after the initial meeting, they felt like these treatment facilities were being shoved on Mattapan. Mm-hmm. There was no public conversation. The elected officials specifically you know, really caused a ruckus and really got City Hall to respond. So to their credit, you know, this it's a lot of this, the credit goes to them. Basically, Mayor Walsh goes in. It's about a little more than 150 people. He starts out the meeting saying, I will not leave until all of your questions are answered. 
I want you to understand why we're putting these facilities here. I want you to understand that we are respecting this community and really spoke to not only the city's, you know, due diligence in making sure that, you know, these these uh, facilities, uh, you know, work in the context of the community. But he also really spoke to the value of these treatment programs. Basically, these from are... From a personal standpoint. From a personal standpoint yes. as, you know, as a recovering addict. And it was it was almost stunning. At, at one point, he said, you know, without programs like this, these are basically uh, between detox, mm-hmm. which is where you go as soon as you decide that, you know, you no longer want to use. Uh, uh, it's the halfway point between that and a halfway house. So you have to go to this facility for something like 30 days uh, in order to have the next step in the recovery process. And he basically said, without something like this, you know, I wouldn't have had a second chance. I wouldn't have been able to run for the city of Boston. So that was that was really stunning. And also, mm-hmm. he vociferously apologized for the community process mm-hmm. Up, up until that point, he, he basically said, we did this wrong. We should have come to you first. There should have been a more public, open process. And I think that as an elected official, it's sometimes it's hard to admit your mistakes and to admit that you, you messed up. And, I, you know, he, he won a lot of points with the people in the community doing that. Obviously, you know, there were still people who were there saying, you know, we should have been involved. We should still be involved. You should stop construction because basically they're renovating existing facilities on a Boston Public uh, Health Commission campus. So it's still city owned property. Um, but, you know, there's one person saying, you know, halt construction until the neighborhood can sign off on it. And Mayor Walsh basically said, no, this has to happen. These people need help, you know, kind of appealing to the softer side. But it was. Um, but I thought he, he also said in your in your piece that something else is going to be here. Uh, yeah. 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 So no matter so, what, so, something's going to go. So there. I'm not stopping this construction because something else is going to be here now. Um, you know, we can argue about whether it ends up being this treatment facility, which I very much think it should be. But mm-hmm. um, I think it's pretty powerful, actually, when a, when a politician says we messed up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to me, that was the most <laughs> striking thing about the yeah. story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it speaks to his commitment to um to this topic obviously because it's very personal to him and and uh and and not only that he apologized but that he stayed you know throughout the whole meeting that's yeah. also very rare he actually stayed longer than i did <laughs> yeah, uh, i had to uh, file a story <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good yeah I, and and it would be interesting just to you know the community should probably know also what would go there instead yes. of the treatment facility if exactly. that is the case but it sounds like he's very he's trying really hard to make it happen um, but just, I mean, I'm sure this is not the last we're going to hear. No, uh, but, but I thought that was an interesting, totally, like, totally yeah. interesting meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, very quickly, Marcella, since you are speaking, um, Marcella Garcia of the Boston Globe, I wanted you to, to talk about something in broad terms because it's you'll be um, it's coming up in a piece that you're writing about, which is a lawsuit filed to get information about um, Malcolm X's um, assassination, the details of it. Yeah, it's not a lawsuit yet, mm-hmm. but it's a very, very significant effort. Uh, small, but but it's it's a, it's an awareness type of campaign to um, to call on the government, the Department of Justice, to release uh, the files, the fed, all the federal files surrounding uh, the assassination of Malcolm X, which, you know, this year will be his 50th anniversary of his death next month. And uh, honestly, a lot of people are surprised that this hasn't happened. Uh, and, you know, uh, just to give a little bit of context, uh, the Dr. King's uh, files were released, I believe, less than 10 years after he was killed. Mm. Um, and so 
this is this is interesting, A, because of the, the, the 50th anniversary of his death, but also in the wake of Ferguson, in the wake of Black Lives Matter, Selma, the movie. So there's a lot of things at play here that could be that could be um you know very relevant and the government could be sending a strong message if if they decide to release all these files because presumably you know people there's a lot of questions around uh, his assassination. Perhaps his uh, real killer is still at large. It could mean that you know he could be prosecuted and found, or uh, it could just be it could just mean that that the government was spying on. You know, like there's all these questions that haven't been answered, and it would I think it would help um, the you know not just the African American community, but but also um, you know I think it would help calm a little bit of the tensions um, that have been. Uh, at play, like, within the past three or four months. And so, definitely we'll put a lot of stuff in context just to remind right. people that uh, uh, Malcolm X was once Malcolm Little and spent a lot of his formative years in Boston. Yes. So oh, there's mm-hmm. likely to be some information in those files right. because you'd have to have the whole thing about what was going right. on here, right. you know, right. as right. well. So Yeah, so um, it was interesting. Again, it, it, this was a this was an effort that's, that started literally by a couple of guys that met at a Facebook group for for Malcolm X, and they're like, let's just start a petition, a White House petition, because you know how when you start a petition of that kind, if you reach a certain number of signatures, the White House has to um, respond to you uh, or respond to the petition. You know, whether that response is relevant or not, it's beyond the point, because by the time you reach that that level of signatures, there's there's more awareness, and, and so, you know, there's like this ball, ball rolling. So... They're hoping to get uh, some attention. Uh, so it's an interesting and fascinating um, Yeah, that was definitely topic. under the radar. I hadn't even right. heard about this. So yeah. this is really yeah. interesting. I'm, I'm, is. I would love to know what's in those Stay files. Stay tuned. Yeah, hopefully yeah. It'll, yeah. they'll come out. And it's one of those things where, it, you know, in, in all circumstances, sunlight is the best sanitization, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, as we always say, more information, you know, is always the best. Transparency. Exactly. <laughs> knowledge is power. I know. Well, thanks a lot, you guys, for bringing knowledge and power to this conversation <laughs> this week. I, I definitely appreciate it. Thank you, Lauren, Ginn, and Marcella. Thank you, Callie. Lauren Dzinski is a reporter for the Dorchester Reporter. Ginn Dumchus is a reporter for the Statehouse News Service. And Marcella Garcia is a bilingual journalist and a regular contributor to the Boston Globe editorial and op-ed pages. Coming up, a project to capture the personal stories of the senior citizens of Boston turned out to be something of a history of the city. The memoir project wrapped up last year after eight years of guiding Boston seniors into writing about their experiences. We'll sample some of their stories next. You're listening to Under the Radar. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. They came from Boston's neighborhoods, ordinary storytellers of a certain age who shaped their memories into stories for new generations. Through the City of Boston's Elderly Commission, the Memoir Project recruited people into the Grub Street Writing Center for a memoir writing workshop. Eight years of workshops ended last year, and now many of those stories have been collected into a book. We asked some of the local authors to tell us about themselves and read from their stories. But first, Michelle Seaton led writing workshops throughout the city for the Memoir Project. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. So it started in 2006. Yes. And you just 
would go into a neighborhood and say, who wants to tell a story? Yes, it was a partnership between the city of Boston and Grub Street Writers, which is who I work for as a writing instructor. And the city uh, elderly commission would go into different neighborhoods and ask elders to take a class. And it was a big risk for them at first. We went into the North End. We had to beg people to, <laughs> to take the class. They had no idea what we were talking about or why they said nothing interesting has ever happened to me. And so it was through this process that we went into every single neighborhood, um, taught a writing class, and then invited um, our instructors to work one-on-one with each person to craft an essay that would go into a book, a published book. And so far we've got four uh, published volumes, and the fifth will come out at the end of this year. So how many people were involved over the years, the numbers of people? So uh, up until this past year, um, I think it's 199 total. Mm -hmm have been involved, uh, seniors who've, who've taken the class all the way through, finished their essays, and are either published or preparing to publish. And how many stories in the, in the end are in these volumes? So each one, so some people told two smaller stories rather than one longer story. So we were looking for a, an essay of between 1,500 and 2,000 words, uh, which is substantial. And some people wanted to tell two shorter stories. So there are more essays than, than there were participants in some cases. Well, of course, when I think about uh, people of a certain age uh, saying they don't have anything to talk about, I, I, I just totally disagree. So I'm imagining all kinds of possible stories. And what, what did you get as, when you finally got them to tell you what was going on in their lives or what had been going on in their lives? We heard, a lo- we heard amazing stories. We mm-hmm. heard about cold water flats, people who lived in apartments with um, no hot water. Uh, we t- heard stories of World War II. We heard stories of the Chinese famine when we went into Chinatown. And that's, that, that uh, particular class was taught in Cantonese and English with a translator. We heard about uh, redlining in Boston, which is a practice when we went into Mattapan. We heard a lot about um, you know, the civil rights movement. We heard about um, also, you know, also more stories of World War II, um, stories of parents that are long gone. We went into some neighborhoods where elders could still um, perform their, the Irish brogues of their long dead parents and talked about um, being in uh, Catholic school and the nuns that frightened them. Um, we heard a lot about um, major historical events in that way. We heard a lot about people who had encountered Martin Luther King. Um, people who were part of the civil rights movement in Boston. Uh, we heard about encounters with uh, Hitler, <laughs> encounters with right um, mm. a lot of history is what we got. So it really is a, a story about Boston, about the people of Boston, but through them, the story. The story of Boston. It is a lot about the story. Mm-hmm. It, it is. We, we tell people they don't have to write about Boston to be in this because we feel that people, once they live in this city, their story is part of the Boston story. And so we've never said – so people did write about – in Chinatown, they wrote about China or they wrote about you know their parents coming here from Ireland or they came from Ireland um, or they came from other countries. Uh, and so we heard those stories too. Michelle Seaton, um, are other cities – have other cities done this? Is this unique to Boston? I, th- I think it is unique to Boston. I really do. We took this project to Nantucket. Uh, we were asked to take it there, and we found other seniors there. Um, and we produced an additional book. And we've had people contacting us to say, how do we do this? It's a, it's a complicated process to, to recruit the seniors, teach the class, coach them, and then edit a book and produce a book. And so I, I wish it would catch on. I wish more cities would do it. Well, tell us the name of the anthologies and where people can find it before we sure. turn over to some of the storytellers here. Uh, well, I'll tell you that each one of the anthologies, uh, the name of it comes from a line in one of the stories. So the first one is called Born Before Plastic, 
which is I, that's my favorite. Uh, the second one is uh, the second one is called "My Legacy Is Simply This." The third one is called "Sometimes They Sang With Us," and uh, the fourth one is called "Imagine Such a Life." Uh, the fifth one, we're still in the process of editing, so we don't know what it's going to be called, but it's going to be pulled from one of those titles. You can buy it through the city of Boston, through the Elderly Commission. All right, and we're going to hear from a few of the storytellers. And first up, Walter Jones. Tell us who you are and uh, where you live. I'm Walter Jones. I'm 86 and will be 87 next month. I live in the New West End. Uh, my wife and I have been there for 45 years. My story is one of the reasons that caused me to move to the West End and like it. Where and when did your story take place? The story <laughs> took place in Vienna, Austria, 1938, during the time that the government of Austria was overthrown by the Nazis. And uh, that was quite an experience. Why did you want to be a part of this project? I did because I had written... Uh, technical papers for quite a number of years, but I'd never written prose, and I wanted to learn more about prose writing, Uh, and believe me, that is difficult. (laughs) When people read your story, um, what do you want them to take away from it? Well, there are three things. First of all, I would like them to uh, be curious enough from the reading to want to read the entire Uh, memoir. Secondly, I'd like to make the point that populations within communities should be diverse for interest and for understanding between uh, neighbors. And finally, a not-so-subtle warning that uh, maybe as a nation we should all maintain the principles uh, that brought the immigrants to America— and not only brought them here, but made it so that they wanted to stay here. All right. So here's Walter Jones reading an excerpt from his memoir, Leaving Vienna, 1938. Almost imperceptibly, at first, life began to change in ominous ways. In school, we spent hours memorizing parts of German mythologic plays, especially the story of Siegfried. As required, Professor Lehrer took the class to local movie houses to see films showing military power. But most sobering to me were the gangs of teenage thugs that now roamed Vienna's streets. It was about this time that Dad decided to come to Vienna to reclaim us and bring us home to America. He had read increasingly dire reports in the New York Times about Hitler's menacing moves. Never was I so relieved to see anyone as when Father walked into Grossi's apartment. Soon after, Professor Professor Lehrer announced that next week, German Chancellor Adolf Hitler would do Vienna the honor of a state visit. All students, he announced, are required to meet early on the morning of this visit in the atrium wearing swastika bands on, on their arms, and then march en masse to the Ringstrasse to await their opportunity to cheer our glorious future leader. A week later, Dad told Mom that we were about to witness the making of history. He also said that even though I had been excused from experiencing these events with my class, 
it would nonetheless be a mistake for me to miss this parade. Can I come also, she asked. No, he replied with force. This is not the sort of thing that should be witnessed by ladies, and besides, you have to stay with Max. Hitler's entry into Vienna had almost comic opera quality. The weather was sunny and cold. The crowd of a million had been there since early morning and was being entertained by flyovers, fighter planes continuously roaring above our heads and by cheerleaders yelling, Given us unsere Führer, give us our leader, to which the crowd obediently chorused, Give us unsere Führer. Military marching bands separated countless phalanxes of the feared black shirts and brown shirts. Finally, in the afternoon, the frowning Führer sped by standing stiffly in his gray open touring car, all the while sporting his famous outstretched right arm salute. The salute was immediately mimicked by the entire shouting horde of frowning Austrian robots. The whole thing was over in 20 seconds, and we went home. That was Walter Jones reading from an excerpt from his memoir, Leaving Vienna, 1938. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar. We're listening to excerpts of memoirs written by Boston seniors through the Memoir Project. In our next excerpt, Carol Blair recounts her longing to be an engineer. Tell us about yourself. I'm Carol Blair. I live in Boston, where the South End and Roxbury meet. I always hate asking people how old they are, but I'm going to ask you. (laughs) How old are you? (laughs) I'll be 65 on February 2nd, Groundhog Day. All right. Where and when did the story take place? Um, My story begins in 1972, after I'd finished my first year studying civil engineering at the University of Vermont, in a little house on Burlington's waterfront, where my summer job was techie and gopher for a small engineering firm. Why did you want to be a part of this project? I was grieving my mother's death and struggling to integrate all I'd learned about my family in the decade before. There were clues about why I am the odd duck that I am. At that time, my first grandkids were six and four, and I wanted to interpret these things for them and their children to equip them for their own journeys. But I knew the technical writing skills that I'd honed in my career would not be good enough to do that. So the memoir class was a great opportunity for me. At the time, I think I just was content to wow people, (laughs) to let people know that I'd done interesting things. Uh, which was kind of a surprise to me, actually, because I, you know, that's all behind me. But I think now, having done more writing classes and learned more about writing, I'm aware that this just begins to scratch the surface on the why of it all, which is what really intrigues me. So this is <clears throat> Carol Blair reading an excerpt from her memoir, Girl Engineer. Frequently stationed alone in the ammonia-filled print room, I'd make as many as 75 copies of a set of 200 sheets. I challenged myself to finish each set a little faster than the last, but my dedication and enthusiasm did not save me from boredom and weariness. Once, I closed my eyes, laid my head on my arms, and rested on the machine right in front of the feeder rolls. For a moment, I drifted off. But then I felt my hair shift. I grabbed my braids and hit the reverse button. Now the hair was wound in both directions around the rollers. I pictured my scalp, but in a desperate tug of war with the machine, I won my ragged braids back. I did my best to remove the hairs that dripped from the rollers, 
but it was many years before I told anyone. I hated to feed the idea that a girl should not do this work. So why was I intent on being an engineer? As a kid, I was fascinated with the building of Interstate 89 through the Green Mountains. My parents often chose a highway construction site for road trip picnics. We played on the huge tires of dump trucks and road graders and in the giant sandboxes created where they, where they cut into the hills. I remember one time returning to a, one site for a lost flip-flop. Construction was part of my daily life. My dad's do-it-yourself approach to our big Victorian home had me helping pour a foundation for our 100-year-old carriage house when I was 14. So a career as an engineer didn't seem at all far-fetched. My dad had told me I should have a profession, in case you don't get married. In retrospect, he primed me for the gender struggle. So I hesitated only briefly at the thought that girls don't do engineering. My brother was studying engineering, and I was sure he was stupid. The next summer, I was an engineer's aide with the Vermont Highway Department. My crew worked on the Burlington Beltline, surveying everything to ensure all was built according to plan and calculating quantities of fill and concrete to reimburse the contractor. Our crew chief, Doug, kept us honest. We were delighted when he declared our work copacetic. Mert, good enough for government work, was the elder and kept us entertained with his stories. Sometimes I set up the transit and took readings, but more often I was the rod man, holding a man-sized ruler vertically on the spot where an elevation was needed or suspending my plumb bob over a point to get its horizontal position. One memorable day, we inspected a new bridge over the railroad. To check the elevation every few feet along the length of each beam, Doug proposed we take turns, walking two beams each. I had never been afraid of heights, but this was not my grandfather's hay barn. A fall would land on the tracks, 30 feet below. No harness, no net. When my turn came, I mounted the end of the beam, one foot ahead of the other, between two rows of pegs that would anchor the rebar of the bridge deck. Mert handed me the rod. I stood up and rocked the rod back and forth slowly so Doug could get a reading. Then I stepped forward. As I lifted my boot, I felt it catch. The heads of those pegs felt like hooks. Heel to toe, my sweaty hands balancing the rod, I continued, one terrifying step at a time, all the way across and then back on my second beam. I jumped down, quietly proud and very relieved. I've never since had to do anything like that. Upon graduating, I married another engineering student, moved to Boston, and started my first full-time job as a junior engineer. But it would be years before I began to understand the persistent challenges of being a woman in engineering. That was Carol Blair reading from the story she wrote as part of Boston's memoir project. It's called Girl Engineer. Next up, we have an excerpt from Esther Williams, who was age 88 when she recorded this for the Boston Memoir Project in 2006. Her reading first aired on American Public Media's Weekend America. Someone told me about this great civil rights march on Washington that was happening in a couple of days. And I wanted to go. I had been reading about seeing the people being bit by dogs, fire hose turned on them, policemen beating them, 
women and children. These people were putting their lives in jeopardy, fighting for all of our people's civil rights. Well, I knew I couldn't go down there, but this march would give me a chance to stand up and be counted, and I wanted to stand up and be counted. I made some inquiries to find out if I couldn't find a seat on one of the, the buses. They were all filled, and I called my mother, and uh, she says, well, she'd call the NAACP. They would know which, which buses were going, and if she could find a seat for us, she would go with me. So she called the NAACP office, and they told her, they checked, and they found out there was only two seats available that they could find, and they were on a bus that a group of college students had managed to get a school bus that they were able to get. And they, we could have those two seats if we wanted them. Of course, we were happy to get them. My mother and I rode, uh, we managed to, to ride to Washington to hear the great speech of Martin Luther King. And I was down, you can't see me because there was an awful lot of people there, but I was down there to be counted. And that is the greatest time day of my life. That was Esther Williams in 2006, reading from her story for Boston's Memoir Project. The Memoir Project ended last year after eight years of collecting these stories. Many of the stories are now in a series of anthologies. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed and including Lanya, our Something Extra segment. You can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org slash UTR. And listen again to the UTR podcast. Subscribe through iTunes. Look Media's Weekend America. Engineer is John Parker. Abby Ruzica is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. 